You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Offscript, American Theater's uh, Facebook uh, dialogue, where we talk about what, what we've been up to and we talk to interesting guests. Really excited today to have two amazing guests, Tamala Woodard and Carl Cofield, who are both taking over major acting theater training programs, uh, Yale and NYU Tisch, respectively. Uh, we will get to them in a second, but first, I'm Rob Weiner Kent. I'm the editor in chief. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm coming to you. Uh, from the mass, the lands of the Maspeth and, and Rockaway uh, nations. Uh, that's not the photo behind me. I can explain the photo behind me in a second. But first of all, I'll toss it to you, JR. Yeah, and I'm JR Pierce, Associate Editor at American Theater. Uh, I am coming to you from the lands of the Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria, uh, more colloquially known as Chicago. And my pronouns are he, him. And yeah, let's definitely talk about that background. Rob, yeah, and I, I, I have didn't a feeling I know. The lands of Maspeth and Rockaway are Queens. I didn't mention that. that Forest Hills is where I'm at. Where I'm, but behind me is the outdoor stage at uh, the Hangar Theater in Ithaca, New York, where last weekend my family and I drove up and uh, caught a play by Idris Goodwin, uh, The Realness, Outdoors, uh, a matinee. Actually, their, their first, maybe it wasn't their first performance, so the first or second performance the previous night was rained out. There was a huge rainstorm and in New York uh, on Saturday. Uh, so we had to go to the matinee, it was, which was fine. Uh, I think last at the last off script, my background was 10th Avenue Meat Market uh, in Hell's Kitchen, where I was about to go for my first real performance. And I, I literally saw a play in Sonny's Meat Market and one in the Police Athletic League down the street, another one in uh, uh, the paint store. Uh, what's it called? Epstein paint. So it, it was in tar theaters uh, sort of tribute to their neighborhood uh, by staging little short plays within various places there. And I think that counts. We're not going to, you know, classify what counts as theater is Springsteen theater. I don't know, but is uh, it was a kind of theater. And then this was an outdoor, my first perform, you know, since last November when I went to uh, Keene uh, premier stages at Keene university. So this is, it was a full play outdoors. Tonight, I'm going to see The Seven Deadly Sins, which is uh, in the Meatpacking District. And it's, uh, I think it's installations. I've heard some amazing stuff about it. I'm, I'm nervous and excited about it. Um, but JR, you recently, you're in Chicago behind you, but you were recently in another city to see your first play since, uh, what, since last March? Is that right? Yeah, since ages yeah. ago, it feels like. Definitely pre-pandemic. It's the first live theater I've seen since then. Uh, because Chicago, in many ways, feels a little behind what you all are experiencing out in New York. I think Goodman's going to be the first in-person theater to come back later this summer, but everybody okay. else seems to be waiting for fall. So I traveled to Philly, <laughs> traveled to Philadelphia to see uh, Antoinette Nwandu's Passover done by Theater in the X and Theater Exile out in Philadelphia. And it was outdoors in Hawthorne Park. And I wrote a nice little article about it that went up uh, earlier today just kind of talking about what it felt like to be in this 
this clearly gentrified area of southern uh, southern Philadelphia that used to be the projects I found out later, but had since been clearly beautified with beautiful setting and trees and all these great condos and apartments and then having Antoinette's play, which is very heavy. It's very heavy. Mm. Um, and having that outdoors. And uh, I think the the part of my piece that, that stuck out the most is, is toward the end of that play when uh, Ossifer, the, the police officer in there, was walking up to these two Black men, Moses and Kitsch, and somebody just walking by who wasn't even like seeing the production stopped pulled out a camera and I was like, oh, it's just like that moment that we kind of have gotten, I don't want to say used to, but like familiar with where if you see something that seems like it could go sideways with especially two black men who may be in the middle of an argument or a loud conversation and a police officer walks up, I think a lot of people have, have taught into their bodies that kind of pause, let me make sure everything's okay before I move on. So it was very, it was very interesting to see and be outside and experience that in as part of that that play. And it wasn't even planned. So yeah, the experience of live outdoor theater. Yeah, that's not something you will see, you probably feel in the New York uh, or on the Broadway stage when it opens on Broadway, August 4th. And, and we have a, Calendra Smith is actually talking to Antoinette for a sort of Q and A about the, the way that play has changed and she's, Antoinette's planning to change it even a little bit more for Broadway. Um, uh, I was intrigued and amused by your sort of a candor or self-awareness about how you as a Chicago theater goer, like where's where's the grit, where's the realism? They took a more absurdist take on it, a more non-realistic take, which, you know, you look back at the interview when we published the play, Antoinette talked, to, uh, she talked about the, the joy and the, the playfulness that she tried to make sure was part of the play, but obviously that's not the main the main takeaway, the Passover, that it's a playful romp. Um, uh, so yeah, that's a it's it's a fascinating uh, story, and it is the last chance folks have to see this version of it before you know they can go look at Amazon Prime, they can look at the Steppenwolf version, but um, the last chance to see it live before it goes to Broadway, and I guess she'll eventually lock it. But one one thing about doing a play that's timely like that is, you know, unfortunately. It feels like a living document. It feels like something that, you know, it, it, it's, it's like one of those plays, I, there's plays, a lot of plays like this that you don't even need to change it for it to feel different in different times, you know? There's um, one definition of a classic, but um, it just feels like a different play in different parts of your life or different parts of, of where, where the culture is. So that's a great piece you should definitely check out. Another piece that went up today um, is my other, in-person outing in the past couple of weeks was to see a rehearsal of Broadway Inspirational Voices. Um, they did a concert on uh, Little Island, this new uh, sort of high line as an island out in the Hudson. And it was my first real experience being among New Yorkers and just like random people and tourists and strangers. It was really moving also to hear them do show tunes in the sort of pop Broadway or sort of gospel pop jazz style that just like to hear the song, what more do I need? If you know the Sondheim song where it's sort of like the gist of the song is this city is awful, but I, you're here and that's all that I need. I have love. Um, 
but they sort of put a spin on that where they sang all this stuff about how the city stinks and it's loud, loud, loud and noisy, but they sort of breezed over that and then just sang this big gospel breakdown on the love of what, of, of what more do we need? Get choked up thinking about it. And then they closed the Sunday, the big thing from the uh, closure of Sunday in the park with George, which just, anyway, I spoke to Michael McElroy, who's leaving the organization after running for 27 years. He's gonna take over as the head of the musical theater program at University of Michigan. Um, and it's going to leave the, the choir in capable hands with Alan Renee Lewis. Um, so that piece is that's a QA with the two of them. Uh, I wasn't sure I was going to do a QA with them, but I found it to actually be really interesting to hear what they had to say about running a choir during a pan pandemic and trying to rehearse that uh, over a year and then just the joy of getting back together and singing together again. I get a little choked up thinking about it. Our, our, our podcast returned this week. Um, well, actually, three on the or sorry, subtext the playwright one never went away, but it's only monthly. And three on the aisle took a couple week, couple months off, and came back this week. And Peter Marks, one of the critics there, he also I didn't see him. He didn't go the same night I did. He also noted how moving it was to see people singing outdoors in New York. It's just anyway, I I have not been that emotional about many of the sort of re-entry uh, rituals that you know, or even I've been hugging people, and that's like you know. It feels like riding a bike. I'm just back into it. But this was not normal. This felt, or it is, you know, it felt special. So um, I'll just touch on a few other things uh, this week. Um, speaking of the subtext, we had a, a wonderful interview with Wallace Shawn, uh, playwright and actor, best known for his acting by most people, but known by anyone who really is paying attention for his, his really difficult, excoriating, uh, beautifully written plays about society falling apart. Um, the, de the Designated Mourner and Grasses of a Thousand Colors, uh, which I believe TCG publishes, um, are also now in podcast versions that are, I think one of them is available today, the other one's in a couple weeks, uh, with the original cast, which includes like Jennifer Tilly and uh, Andre Gregory directing. Uh, that's a really great conversation. We also have run a first person piece by Sean Williams, the producer uh, who was a podcast, he's a theater producer who also got into podcasts, producing the sort of sci-fi plays of Mac Rogers. And they're both huge um, Wallace Sean stands. And when he reached out to them to say, hey, you wanna record my, my plays as podcast? They were, you know, they got to meet their hero basically. And then he writes about how getting to meet your hero is great. Um, and they had to like face these really harrowing plays and sit with these plays and edit these. It's like, that's, that goes with it. It wasn't, he was a, he was a delight as a playwright, but the plays are not a delight to, to, to partake in. Um, although I, you know, I can't, I recommend them. The other, uh, the other, those are a couple of stories together. We also this week uh, on our social channels shared a lot of stories for Pride Week about the coverage we've done over the years of LGBTQ issues. So you can look on our social media to find those. JR, this week we also did a pair of stories about changes in um, training institutions, which was some of the subjects we'll talk about with Carl and Tamala. But if you touch on, could you tell us a little bit about those two stories, one by yourself? Yeah, uh, I'll touch on them very briefely. Uh, they're a follow-up, uh, the pair of stories are kind of a follow-up to Sierra Diane's reporting uh, last summer as a lot of student organizers and alumni organizers were putting together our lists of demands for their universities. And um, 
uh, that kind of came along with the flood of other demands like we see in American theater. And so uh, Sierra led a panel as part of TCG's conference a few weeks ago. And so she was writing about this, what has and more importantly, what hasn't changed since those demands came out. And a lot of the pressures that those demands unintentionally put on the shoulders of a lot of uh, students and actors of color and, and artists of color who are uh, sometimes charged with trying to create the change in this institution that they're demanding um, without as much help from their institutions. Uh, and so that also inspired the piece that I wrote, which was talking to university leaders and professors who are also who are of color and are in these situations also trying to help push for this change. And a lot of pressure that falls on them, both as in terms of you know, them being the support vehicle for a lot of these students of color who are experiencing harm in these programs, but also the harm that they experience themselves, whether it's, you know, not seeing the same treatment as their white colleagues or, or feeling the pressure as educators to try to educate other colleagues who may not be as progressive in their thinking and the kind of pressure and unpaid labor that comes along with that. So. Yeah, those couple of pieces looking at the university scene and, and the uh, the road that still needs to be traveled <laughs> in, in terms of that. So, yeah. Yeah, the only other piece I would highlight before we go to our guests, which is related, uh, uh, is a, a wonderful Q&A with Felicia Rashad, who was recently named Dean of Howard, Howard University's uh, College of Fine Arts. Um, and it doesn't go so much into those issues of change, um, but it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a lovely interview with uh, really a national treasure um, and it's education related. So it's our segue to go to our guests today, uh, Tamala Woodard and Carl Cofield. Tamala is the, it will be the incoming chair of the, uh, the Yale Chair of Acting at Yale. Um, I think I said Yale three times there. And Carl will be the chair of graduate acting at NYU Tisch. These are both two of the leading training institutions in the country. Um, and it's a, it's a big deal and anytime they change over leadership. Um, I think it's, it's momentous that we have two black leaders in these positions. Um, but I wanna just start by asking you to, first of all, welcome you to the, uh, there you are. How are you doing? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, you're, you're both directors uh, and I think performers at some point as well. Um, I mean, we could take this in turn, but I guess, first of all, congratulations on the new job. And um, I guess my first question, not to put, put it, get too far into it, but how much of, of, of the hiring process and your thinking process is about change and how much is it about continuity with, uh, with the institutions you're, you're gonna be leading? You take that in any order you want. <laughs> Rob, that's a softball question. <laughs> yeah, softball one. Yeah, just start with a softball. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, the wrong answer would be continuity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'll say to me, I think, yeah, it's 100% about like um, uh, change. Um, this is the short answer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Can I, can I add to that before you jump in there, yeah. Carl? Like when, you, when we talk about that change, one of the things that came across in my reporting for my article on, on the university system was the fact that some change, and especially when it comes to curriculum, can take years and years to like 
get through that system and get through all that kind of institutional backlog. So like, as you're approaching this, if I remember correctly, Tamala, your appointment is five years and Carl, yours is, is three years for the specific head position. So I'm curious like how you're looking at that timeline in terms of change and how, how quickly you think there, there will be able to be change. Yeah, I think, you know, we didn't get in this predicament overnight. So obviously time is gonna be the thing that is, uh, uh, you know, needed. And to implement change is hard. I mean, it is what it is. And um, that doesn't deter us, uh, at least uh, 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 in staking a big claim out there and saying, this is where the organization is headed. Um, and that's something that's exciting. I think, you know, obviously we're in a global reckoning where people are demanding change and, and today is not soon enough. So I feel the urgency to make change uh, and thoughtful change and not just change for the sake of change, but really thinking it through all the way through and seeing the ramifications of what this change is and what is it really. So um, it's gonna take, it's gonna take time. That's the, the, the short answer, um, but I'm not deterred. And, and uh, I, I would just like to add my perspective on it too is the examination of the entire curriculum is what takes time and seeing what needs to be dismantled, quite frankly, or what can be enhanced, because I don't think it's all necessarily um, bad. Maybe how we're going about it needs a little tightening and some investigation and some uh, streamlining, perhaps. So just to reiterate, yeah, time, time. I wanted to ask, maybe, maybe this is less of a, less of a hard question, just to ask you a little bit about your own training, um, your own background. If there's certain schools of uh, training that you that you adhere to, I mean, literally the schools you went to, but also kinds of approaches. Um, I know, Carl, you're directing uh, this summer two Shakespeare productions of a sort. I mean, Seize the King is an adaptation and the King Lear, I think was, was that was adapted as well, or is that pretty much straight King Lear? No, straight old Arden King Lear. <laughs> Um, and so I wonder, you know, of course, the word classical has a lot of baggage around it, you know, um, but I, I wonder if you just talk in general, both of you about your own training um, as theater artists, what, what, it, what, it's, what it's encompassed over the years. Yeah, I, I, you know, once I discovered theater, I was like, very narrowly focused <laughs> on it. And so, you know, I went to, uh, I, I've gone to too many schools. Uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon uh, as a, you know, in that conservatory program. And then I left that, finished that program and worked for um, uh, a few years and then decided I was in a conveyor belt machine factory of acting. And that was not what I it was not what I wanted. And so decided I go to graduate school. I said, Yale, and naively didn't understand <laughs> what that really meant. Uh, and I honestly wanted to go to Yale because I was trying to figure out how to be a director. And uh, the only place I could figure it out was to sneak in to Yale as an actor and direct at the cabaret. That was really my plan. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, just didn't didn't know enough about Yale to be afraid to try that thing, uh, and that's and that's it. So Carnegie Mellon, Yale, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life was going to graduate school and going to Yale, and to this day, as evidenced by my presence here, 
think um, it has been something that has fed me for two decades. Yeah, and um, you know, I went to a theater conservatory at University of Miami. You know, it was a BFA program, um, and it was you know what you imagine those conservative programs to be like. Very rigorous. Uh, gave you a little bit of everything during your um, you know as you you know, progressed, um, you went into classics, you went into Greeks, you went into, you know, uh, everything else. But strangely enough, I do remember having conversations, even in, I'm going to date myself a little bit, you know, this is 25, 30 years ago, having conversations of like, um, you know, I don't want to cause an alarm, but where's Lorraine Hansberry on the curriculum? Like just, oh, no, no, you know, and, and receiving pushback against what I thought was, um, as classic of a play as you can have. And if we're not gonna at least have that on the curriculum, I even in my young age back then, 18 years old was like, no, that's seriously problematic. Um, then I went on to go to uh, Columbia, the graduate program at Columbia for directing. Um, I'd went out and, and worked as an actor for a long time um, and had some great experiences with some super talented directors and some not so great experiences with directors, which actually was more informative, if you can believe it or not, because I automatically knew what I didn't want to do and the type of room that I didn't want to create. So to your, to your point, Rob, about um, styles and techniques, I'm going to say that some of the theory I learned in school, but the practicum of being in rooms, being treated a certain way was probably one of the greatest teachers I had, which made me want to make sure that if I ever had the privilege to be in a leadership position, I would never uh, create an environment like that. Agree, same. I think the environment's such an important thing to talk about. And Carl, we talked about it a little bit for uh, my article about Black men doing Shakespeare and this idea of being able to bring your entire self to the work and being able to, to bring your culture and your history and your background into that kind of sometimes prescribed world of, of the Western classics. So I'm curious how you all are looking at being able to create that space while also having this idea of like, you have to teach young people like the so-called right way to do theater. So how do you balance those two things? I'm kind of curious. I've been going first. I'm not going first again, Carl. <laughs> well, before I answer, let me preface it by saying, you know, um, I didn't just wake up saying, hey, you know, I want to spend time grappling with Shakespeare and Euripides and, and all of this. I have to preface this by saying, I'm a black man of a certain age who grew up during the golden age of hip hop. Um, um, and the moment I was in a scene study class in undergraduate, you know, going over the soliloquies of Hamlet and, and looking at it through this, I, I, I was allergic from the giddy up, right? So, so the, the, the terminology made me allergic, right? Created a, an invisible barrier that told me I, I wasn't welcome, or at least I felt that way. But I remember it, JR, and you'll, you'll forgive me for going back over this, but it hit me like a sledgehammer one day sitting in class, going through this soliloquy, but then relating that to public enemies uh, chaos in an hour, uh, Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, which is a, a, a fantastic song for those who don't know about Public Enemy. And Chuck D basically gives a soliloquy much the same way. But for some reason, it, that spoke to me and resonated with me in a profound way. 
And so once I was able to marry the two and say, oh, there is a connection here. We're painting pictures that, you know, have these universal themes, but this one registers with me a little bit more and use that lens to decipher this classical text, quote unquote classical. And we'll talk about this later. I'm moving towards heightened language as opposed to classical, right? So we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But once I had agency and permission to do that, the sky was the limit. And then I said, you know, Chuck D is using puns, he's using witticisms, and he's coming from an authentic place, much like, hey, Falstaff, right? Falstaff's greatest thing is his wit and being able to talk. And if, he, if I can talk to you, I can use wit in a way that is sort of like my uncle's in the barbershop. Get a drink in them, we can start talking and using language in a different way. That was my in into what this heightened world um, was. Uh, so I'm grateful for that. Much like, um, you know, um, it turned on a light which ignited my curiosity, which I think is at the core of really, really good acting, a rigorous curiosity. So. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not offering up a classical education <laughs> for actors. That's not the thing that's here. What I hope to, the invitation that I'm making is a place for um, uh, um, really good storytellers to come and find their means um, to bloom. You know, how can I, uh, offer them like a lot of some fertile ground um, so that the thing that's in them can actually bloom. That's the thing that this is about. And so what that means to me is that I need to meet literally every person I invite at the door. You know, I need to say, who are you? What do you need? And then I'm responsible for making sure that I gather the ingredients that's needed, the, the, the thing that can create a fertile environment for them. And that's gonna change every year, right? Um, because it changes with every single cohort. And I think one of the things that is, I'm very interested in is being able to be that responsive to people. And so an institution is a place of hard walls and, and demarcations. And, um, and I've said, you know, in our, 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 our our meetings, I was like, I'm not interested in an in, in institution. Let's talk about a community. And so I am trying to um, train myself to continue to think not out of the box, but inside of the community. Like, who are the people? Who are the people? And what do the people need? And that's the students, that's the faculty, you know, that's the, that's the, the folks of New Haven, you know. I mean, my job is not to deal with the folks of New Haven, but the folks of New Haven are, you know, are influencing the students. The students go and live with other people. They walk down those streets, you know. They're, the, the faculty does too. And so, you know, all of those things are gonna help us put forward something that's really fertile um, and that will uh, give this, the folks who join us the, the the most opportunity for expansion and evolution. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, if, that, if I had heard that my first day of college going into actor training, I would have been really excited. That would have been the great, great first day, great first thing to hear. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Did you hear so, the one that I heard, which was look to your right, look to your left? Some of y'all won't be here. Won't be there. Yeah. yeah, that's what I heard. That was that was that was my undergraduate training. Oh yeah, uh, same. Very much the same because it was I mean, all about we, competition. 
Oh yeah. And because our freshman year, you weren't in any program. So you had to audition at the end of freshman year to just get into the acting program. So there were a lot of people who were interested in acting who did not make that cut. So they were very clear, like some of y'all won't be here in a few months. You'll be in some other program, but that's no good. It's rough. It's rough. Um, but yeah, like uh, speaking of these kind of like demarcations you mentioned and these like walls that can come up in these educational settings, I'm curious like how we make sure that these programs, which are so intensive and like require so much of yourself, don't become this isolated bubble from like the theater world at large and these kind of larger questions that we're talking about uh, overall. Carl may not remember this, but I called him up and I was like, Carl, we're not in competition. <laughs> Would not forget it. We'll take it to the grave. Absolutely. <laughs> we are, our job is to change, change this industry from the moment they set foot in our programs. And we're going to take hands and do that together. No, absolutely. And what, as a matter of fact, you know, um, I, in that conversation, we were talking about extending the table and you were like, no, I'm not even thinking about the table. I'm thinking about like the whole restaurant or you, you know, <laughs> it's like, there's no table. My, yeah. my thing is like, there's no table. There's yeah. no table. Table is limited real estate. Yeah, that so, is already you know, like take the table away and then we can create an ever expanding circle. However big that circle needs to get. We don't need to get around a table. That's only yeah. so big. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, that was just for everybody at home. I definitely remember the conversation. Definitely. Yeah, it was exciting. And yeah, you know, the, the atmosphere is electric right now, which is, um, you know, it's palpable. We feel the change. We're hearing it from uh, uh, all the circles. But to your, your question, JR, about how do we not uh, make it, and forgive me if I'm misphrasing it, this insular sort of thing. Um, one, we have to care and that be in our mission statement to not make it that way and to really go out and really uh, meet people where they are and not just say, you know, you got to be in New York at this three days or we're going to be in L.A. in this three days or, you know, so, so that model probably needs to be reexamined about where mm -hmm. we're getting our applicants from and, and, and really communities with voices that we don't traditionally hear from, why not? So it's, I think it's about really asking some probing questions about how, how did we get here, right? What is this history uh, and what is this history's legacy doing to the people we're inviting to, to deepen their art? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that's such a, a difficult thing to, to kind of, picture at this moment because it's hard to find the the right examples of where that work's being done especially when we talk about these larger uh historically white institutions and like these these upper class institutions that uh for lack of a better way to say it like can become very limited in who can actually attend especially when we talk about monetar monetarily so i think that kind of outreach and being able to find people in those communities that don't get spoken to as much, I think is very crucial. It seemed like you wanted to add something, Carl, so. No, I, I, de I definitely will. And I think, um, you know, Tamla's program, what is super exciting about that is they, they figured out one of the barriers to entry is the economic, you know, common denominator, and that's huge, right? 
automatically you're inviting more people to this open circle, right? Because we're not saying a barrier to entry is you got to have $60,000. And I think that's hugely problematic. And that's one of the things that is on my, you know, day one to-do list is to talk about, if we're talking about, you know, equity and inclusion, right? For me, that's one of the places you got to start and economic diversity, which, um, for me is crucial about whose voices and who we get a chance to interact with. And you shouldn't, you know, I, I don't wanna, you might have to delete this later, uh, but you know, $400 shouldn't determine who gets to see art, right? Whether that's on Broadway, whether it's, you know, whatever, the, the, the monetary portion shouldn't determine who gets to be an artist and who gets to experience art. You know, Carl, we're live, so we can't delete that. So, <laughs> goodbye, everybody. It was nice working with everybody. But thankfully, you're preaching to the choir when you say that. You're preaching yeah, to totally. The choir <laughs> totally. You know, we, we had a piece a couple of years ago by A. Ray Pamatma, who's a, who's a Filipino uh, playwright, and he wrote a piece. And I'm, I'm going to not do it justice. You should look at the piece, but it was a speech he gave, and it was a bit about how he's challenged in trying to teach. Uh, young people, idealist young people and diverse young people, the realities of the business without recreating those realities in the, in the, in the uh, academic environment. You know, I went, to a, I went to USC film school and they ran it like a little film studio and you had to compete for a slot to even just do, you know, do anything. And I don't, I don't think, I think there's a, academic should be a place where you can also explore and try on things you would never get to do elsewhere. I wonder how you think about that balance between, as it relates to some of the issues we're talking about, but just in general, the, the, the balance between a rigorous education and a free, you know, a place to play. Um, does that make sense? You know, I, I think the one thing, anybody who lost in this business figures out one thing, the only comp, the competitions with yourself. It's always, that's what it is. You know, that is it. Um, and, and it's also the only thing you can control, <laughs> like how much time you spend on something, how little time you spend on it, how much money you spend on something, you know, how kind you are, uh, uh, um, that, that's, that's it. So to me, I, I don't need to train people how to be com good competitors. Um, that, that, you know, you're going to, you know, to run the race at the pace that you need to. Um, I, I think it's really about making sure that people know how strong they are and that they can determine what level of, you know, shoulder to the grindstone any given thing needs. So, so this place is in the way that training is, it's like, how strong can we get you? How strong do you want to be? You know, how much endurance do you need? And just showing them in a safe environment, like whatever they think they can do is probably exactly what they can do. And there might be a little bit more, you know, and if they fall and exhaust themselves doing it, there's a nice soft service there, right? Um, for them to recover. There's a place to recover. So this place is about not just uh, robust learning, but also about trying the stuff that you think might hurt you, might kill you, might destroy you, but knowing that there's some folks there that can help put you back together. Because when you leave this place, probably nobody you can count on will put you back together. Yeah, no, I, I, I 
I think that's beautiful. And, and, you know, this is a question I struggle with in, in applying for these type of jobs, right? The landscape that the actor is going out into. Um, and my hope is to prepare the actor and give them the tools necessary for a post COVID world, right? So we've had a time, we've had a time to pause and say, if we were to create the world anew, what would it look like? Right. So I, I, I'm hopeful and I am optimistic that knowing what we've known before and the problems in that, we can we can seek to address it. But we can also give the actor agency. That's one of the big things that I am um, really looking forward to. L a little context in that. When I came into the workforce, it was th th there were so many barriers to entry. Right you couldn't just act, right? You had to wait for the agent to call you and hopefully the producer let the casting director, and, and, and I'm so glad to say that's changed now. And there's more agency in the actor. And we are learning, you know, at least for me, I'll speak from the eye, that theater or performing can be made in a thousand different ways now. We can make theater on Snapchat. We can make a musical video here and this, this, this. So it's really about training the actor for the 21st century post COVID landscape that I'm super interested in. And the common denominator for me is actor agency. To that point too, it's a rigorous field, right? It is, and at least from my vantage point. And I love that analogy of how strong do you wanna be? because we want to equip you with whatever uh, muscles and tools you will need to, be a, uh, to do the art that you wanna do. I, I, I caught myself to say how successful you wanna be. The, the, the artist that you wanna be, what type of endurance, what type of stamina, what type of muscle does that need? And how can we be the, 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 the Sherpas to help you get on this Everest, um, to create an environment um, that is conducive to that, that is rigorous, but loving, yeah, which is demanding, but coming at it from a point of view, and here's where the slippery slope starts, because at least in my training, sometimes that can be masked as a hard criticism, which can um, actually cause trauma, because that's one of the things I'm hearing more and more about, this, this trauma that is lingering. But to create that happy balance between we are super uh, uh, invested in you as an artist, and we want to hold you to the standard that you say you want to, to the artist that you want to be. It's a long-winded answer, but it, 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 it's rooted in agency for the actor. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's, please go ahead. No, I was just saying, I really agree with that, that that's, I, I feel like that's exactly right. You know, how do we, these are primary collaborators. They're not secondary collaborators. You know, they're in charge of their art and how do we, I, I absolutely with you, Carl. So appreciate that, how you just articulated that. Yeah, same. I know, like, just thinking back to, to my undergrad in acting and like, I still remember like criticisms that like peak as something that might have been better received if it had been said kinder, but like there's still those little things in the back of my mind. I don't even act anymore. I haven't acted in seven years, but I still like have that thing. Um, but I also wanted to talk about, you mentioned like how we're preparing 
students for for this kind of new brand of theater, like this new new age of theater and looking at the kind of digital world that came out over the last year and a half, is that something you both are hoping to incorporate into your programs? I know, at least for me, we had film classes, but we never really touched on how theater can be applicable to a digital or filmic world because I was just too early for that. But I'm curious how uh, how you're looking at incorporating that. This this um, uh, year, this school year that uh, this COVID school year that was uh, 2020, 2021 was a really, um, just, you know, I keep giving credit to Walton Wilson, who's the current chair for the next few days, uh, and my, uh, will be my partner in crime as we move forward. Um, put out an invitation um, to the entire, you know, acting cohort and faculty, and, and a whole new syllabus was, was born for this year. And one of the things that it allowed was for the acting students to um, engage in other ways, other mediums of storytelling. And there was enormous amounts of film um, that was involved in there. And, and also like uh, sort of like light bulbs <laughs> that came on, you know, for a lot of these um, um, uh, storytellers uh, that I think is, is useful for us to think about like, again, how to, this, is a, this is a tool of agency. Like, and if agency is the, you know, I keep thinking of choice as the word, but I think agency is really what I was after, Carl. So thank you. <laughs> um, you know, this film, film and filmmaking and holding that camera and being able to think about how uh, um, um, uh, you know, that actors can take hold of that as a, as a, as a thing that they can do without, you know, a, a playwright without a director, without all the other people that are a part of, you know, my particular, where I am, Yale School of Drama, was really empowering because they had to do that themselves in this COVID year. And so I, I am just, it's like on the little burner here for me going, how do we not lose that beautiful little opportunity that was manifest because, you know, all we had was a camera. So I don't know the answer, but I know it was really fruitful. Um, and I'm, I'm eager to figure out where it belongs. You know, that's not just about TV acting or film acting, not about acting in front of the camera, which is its own thing, which people will get, but how do you actually make, how do you be a maker? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and to me, that's the, the rabbit hole that I want to go down. Um, to your point, it's not like the, you know, uh, uh, the film version of it, but it's more like, Speaking from the eye, there were many times on my journey where I felt underutilized and I was not just this small cog in this big machine, but there was there was more there. And I just want to encourage and, and hopefully, you know, aid the actor in saying, well, there is more there. I can be a collaborator on this and from this point of view and uh, um, just some more tools in the toolbox. I will just say. Uh, you know, looking on Instagram and seeing some of the stuff that people are, are putting together and you're like, oh my God, of course. Like, I, I wish that had been around um, when I was, you know, uh, uh, trying to figure out how to be creative and how to, you know, uh, uh, share my craft. Um, so that that's something that is really super exciting. How we get there, JR, to your original question, 
I'm not sure, but I do know I'm interested in starting that conversation with some super smart collaborators and, you know, and, and figuring out um, how do we do this? You know, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I, I, I have a similar feeling when I look at like TikTok and I'm watching some of the creative things people are doing on TikTok. But then I also have the idea of like, me at 20 years old, I don't want to know what that 20 year old would have created. But I'm glad to see what these these people are creating. I'm just like, me personally, I'm glad there's no record of what I was creating at 20. But uh, I really look forward to to what what you're saying, like this agency that it it allows people in yeah. this kind of space to be their creative selves. Yeah. It's like what Carl's saying is like, you used to have to wait for, you know, the, you know, you'd have to, and also remember when casting used to be pretty, like you knew, like people were casting their first play and then their second play, and then the Black History play, and then the spring musical, you know, it's like everything was that. And if you missed that round of casting, especially if you missed that February, that, that November casting for the February play, you were out of work as a black actor. And so you were just like waiting, you know, because all you could do is wait for people to call, uh, you know, or go make your plays and rent a theater and spend all your money that you saved. And in this way, now, Folks can be, you know, can be primary in their creative process and other people can see it. You know, so all we're doing is, again, it's access, just a different level of access. Not everything has to happen in the classroom. Not everything has to happen in the studio theater. Not everything has to happen in the big, you know, university theater either. That you can actually be in a conversation with an audience as an artist in many different ways and testing out those tools that you're getting in these programs. I mean, that might be a good segue for me to ask, uh, to circle back to what you, you were saying, Carl, about years ago, there was like no, not even Lorraine Hansberry in the programming, in the, in the, in the, in the training. Can you talk a little about how these, a bit of what you're saying, uh, Tamala, will manifest itself in the actual curriculum and, and the, you know, the programming, the casting that's going to be available to, to students. I mean, do you pick a season? Um, I know JR's piece, uh, he talked to Lisa Cortez at DePaul and she's involving the students in helping to pick which roles they want to, like giving them more literally agency and what they want to do. And I don't know how, how far you can take that, but I wonder if you want, is there any specifics or even just a general uh, ethos you're going to employ when you say like, here's the kind of, you know, menu of options we're going to present and the works we're going to consider. It's a big question, I know, but either of you have something to say about that. Yeah, I, I, there are a few things that are happening um, for me that are me that are happening. Um, one is just thinking about like, I, I teach a third year class that is about the impossible play or like stretch scenes, you know, and thinking, um, and, and I'm preparing with my co-teacher right now, the reading list. And, you know, that list is pretty good list. It's pretty, that list has a whole bunch of, whole bunch of kinds of storytellers on it. But I'm even more excited about some, you know, of growing that list. Um, and so I'm thinking about that as you don't have to read all these plays, but you should know every single one of these playwrights. Um, and as a way just to expand, so that the, the students who are there actually know there are folks who are telling your story and your story and your story and your story and our story, you know, that all of those things are there and that they can choose that there's actually like 
there is actually an abundance of choice. The problem is, is that there's like a tiny little pipeline that says these plays. And then that pipeline is, you know, is um, it's too small. It requires, I don't know, somebody has been produced on Broadway. I don't know that they've been dead for a hundred years. <laughs> you know? like, the requirements were insane. Like, is this a good piece of art? Yeah. Can another artist take hold of this? and grow inside of it? That's really the question. And so that's what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about the kinds of plays that we're engaging. I'm also thinking about who's at, who's at the school, right? Who's, who's teaching? Who are these conversations with? And making sure that, um, uh, I, I like to say like, uh, the school is like, it's like a really wonderful diversity, which is also why I was like excited um, to be there. However, that diversity, you have folks rolling into your doors and you haven't prepared the table for them, right? And like, how do we prepare the table for our guests in a really intentional way? Um, um, and so I'm thinking about that and how do we invite folks into the school, not as um, JR in your piece, Sophia um, Skiles says, not the magical solution, right? Mm. <laughs> Let's get all these brown people and that'll just be the solution. <laughs> yeah. No magical solutions, but actually like who, like what is the exchange that this community of folks need to have? Um, and how do we invite folks in who can um, set them on fire? That's the thing. But also that the faculty, I'm asking the faculty, what do you need? What do you need to be like, just jazzed about being a theater artist also? So that our responsibility is always to each other and nobody's a servant. Yeah, I am thinking about it going forward is, is just for me to really be with a group of collaborators and say, well, what is this playwright who we've uh, just inherited the mythology? What are we inheriting and what are we aiming at? Or what are we trying to take away from it? Because I'm here to tell you to Tamla's point, there's probably about four, five, 600 other playwrights who are doing that too, right? But in a more, uh, uh, um, in a more inclusive way. So it would, for me, one of the things I'm excited about is going down and interrogating our syllabuses and saying, are we just inheriting this? Are we just saying Shakespeare is it? Are we saying, no, we're trying to, to, to prepare the actor to deal with heightened language. Ah, if that's the case, let's throw in Derek Walcott. Let's throw in, you know, insert, a thousand uh, talented playwrights in there too to say, well, if we're doing that, then we should really um, expand our vision um, and make it more inclusive to the world that we live in. Going going back a little bit because I you said something earlier, uh, um, Tamla, about about access, and like I, I really wanted to to make sure to ask this question, but. As we move forward and we move out of the pandemic and we get back in person, especially when we're talking about acting programs, where it's so crucial to acting programs to be in person, is there room in your in how you see the programs moving forward for there still being digital access for anyone who might be interested in acting 
but maybe it's easier for them, like talking about maybe people with disabilities or with um, some other pre prevention that makes it easier for them to be on a digital, in a digital world. Is there room in that, in these programs as you move forward? Um, I think that this, my answer to that is that um, my responsibility when I invite somebody there is to make sure that they have access to all that's, uh, that, that they need. Uh, and so, it, it, um, you, know, I, you know, I was just thinking about, gosh, if we have a, uh, a deaf actor or an actor who's hard of hearing, like, how do we support that? Like, how do we support that? The question's not no to that person. The question's, okay, what do I need to prepare? You know, how do I need to think about this universe that's, you know, YSD so that they can have access and ownership of that space, you know? Um, so I, I think the answer is like, there, there should be room. I think we can make room. We can make room for people to enter our community, but it is, we have to do it according to the human. <laughs> that's there. Like we have to be in, in response to the real human. Um, that's what I would say. I don't want to ask people to come and then I'm like, uh, you know, they're, you know, I was like, this, this, all we have to serve you is meat and you are vegan. <laughs> so, you know, but I told you, you could come and sit at the table. <laughs> and they're like, well, I'll sit here and watch you all eat. You know, that is not what we want. And so I think it just starts, it's a dynamic conversation. How, who, the invitation happens. Here's what Yale has to offer. What else do you need? I think I have those resources. I think I have time to get those resources so that you can bloom here. Those are the steps. And then like, as we, as we kind of start to wind down, I, I want to kind of give you both this, this big question, uh, looking forward at your five and three year, 10 years, what, what do you hope people are saying about your, your respective programs by the time you get to the end of those 10 years? What do you hope the conversation is around the programs as a, compared to what it is now, what it's at, what it has been, what do you hope that conversation is around your, your respective programs? You know, I would hope, you know, um, it would start by saying they are bold. They are, they are bold and they're committed. Um, they acted with the best interest of trying to foster an agency within the actor. And in turn, everyone is better for it. The actors are better for it. The community is better for it. And hopefully the world is starting to uh, be better for it because of the collaborators and the, the actors and the artists who are coming out of the program are saying, well, we're not working in those old conditions, not to be confrontational, but the world can be so much better. We've been doing it here at NYU, so let me share my knowledge at the table. I'm bringing, uh, I'm bringing this beautiful meatless lasagna to the table. Taste it. I know you love meat, but taste the way we've been cooking it up. So I, I, that's my hope, that the, um, the level of artistry deepens, the level of the human artist, uh, uh, artist warrior continues that we you know continue in that tradition so uh i'm cautiously optimistic 
that uh, that will be the conversation in three years. I'm hopeful. Yeah, I'm just, I, I just want, I, I want people to say, oh, look, they changed the industry. That's what I want. I love that answer because one of the questions I, I wasn't able to, to fully flesh out for my, my piece on, on universities was this idea of like, what needs to change first? The program that's creating the future artists or the industry within the, the artists will be eventually working in, like which needs to come first. And I love the idea that, yeah, it can start from these university programs who are putting out all these great artists and, and changing the industry. So I'm very appreciative of that. Um, Rob, I don't know if you had anything else. Yeah, I just, yeah, I'm inspired. I want to go back to, I want to go back to school based on this. Uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm sure you, you, you both have, have worked with younger, younger people and directed so you might have had this chance to, to to do this before, but I wondered if there's one thing you could say to your younger self, is one thing you one piece of teaching that you, the young Carl coming into to program Miami or you, Tamala, uh, got to many programs, Carnegie Mellon, others. What was the one thing you wish someone had said? And now you, you get a chance as a leading these programs. Maybe it's not a, a phrase, but it's something you want to impart to these folks that you that you maybe didn't fully get in your training. This is this is uh, this is not a uh, this advice I gave myself and I, yes. I, I and I would give again to other people and I've said it already. Be greedy, be greedy, eat everything. Put you know <laughs> just like make yourself freaking fat in these three years with mm. what is before you. Like don't leave a scrap on the freaking table. Yeah, I. Um... The advice, honestly, yeah. is the ethereal, yes, and, 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 and the, um, the theory, but learn about money. Because as an artist, that is something that we don't talk about, how to manage your money when you make it. And that's something I'm committed to and, and providing, you know, a, a little resource for the artist, mm -hmm. um, because that's real. And as these divides get further and further apart, I wanna make sure I give you all the tools to be the artist that you wanna be. But some of that has to be like, do you know how to do a budget? Do you know how to do your taxes? <laughs> because in order for you to be this wonderful artist that we want you to be, that is a reality. I don't want you going into an audition thinking about you know, uh, uh, something else. So that would be something um, that I would I would season into into the training. Always save 10% of whatever you get. Small things like that. that that's probably not the sexy answer. Oh no, that's but that's real. That's great. I know it was a metaphor uh, in many ways uh, you were saying Tamala, but it's like basically food and money. These are you know materials that deal with your body, your bodily needs. It's a bodily profession, right? Um, it's spiritual too, but you know. It almost goes without saying, I suppose. Um, I really, really appreciate your time today. I can't wait to see you know the students you turn out at your schools, and we'll be covering that. Um, and I hope covering your work in, in many other fields as well, your directing and uh, your other work. Um, so thank you so much again, Tamala and Carl, for taking the time today. 